All right, everyone. So, um, sorry for a few hiccups there. We are now getting into um, getting into a new series, and and it's a new series. It's a new time. It's a you know it's a new month. Um, even for myself, this is this is a, a, a new uh, a new season of life for me. I just started full time this past week um, as the minister of young adult college and young adult here at SBC Wana. So this is this is my first sermon as a as a young adult pastor, I guess. And 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 I out of all the topics I can choose, out of all the books I could have chosen, usually, you know, seminary they recommend you first sermon series, just you know, keep it easy. I don't know. I guess I decided I want to do something minor profits. And I guess I want to talk about God's judgment. So let's let's get right into it. Let's let's get into the tough stuff. Let's let's talk about these things here that I think I think we should meditate upon. That I think will actually help edify our souls if we meditate upon certain aspects, certain characteristics of God that don't normally come to our mind. Let me begin by asking you this. What characteristics of God brings you comfort when you go through difficult times? What characteristics of God do you think of that you go to when you're struggling, when you're struggling with your life, that you're going through emotions in your faith? Perhaps you think about God's love, right? Your constant God's love, great theological doctrine of God's love. He's, his love is amazing. His love is deep. His love overwhelms us it is by his love that we are saved or maybe you think about god's grace his mercy how he's a tender god how he cares about you how he how he forgives you constantly and that his grace is what strengthens you that gives you courage to move on it gives you confidence to go and again that's a great doctrine to meditate upon god's grace is amazing it's by grace alone that we are saved but how many of us think about God's judgment as a source of comfort? How many of us think about what it means for God to be angry at sin, to be wrathful against his enemies, for God's judgment to come and that truth to bring us comfort? That is what the book of Nahum is about. The sermon series, I titled it as Poetic Justice. It's our study through Nahum, and I call it Poetic Justice because uh, the book of Nahum, scholars say, it, at least in the original language in Hebrew, is one of the most beautiful written books in the Old Testament. It's, it's, it is full of imagery, just colorful pictures, but it's all colorful pictures of God's judgment. Beautiful hymn, a beautiful poem of God's judgment and so I call this poetic justice but I also call it poetic justice because it is indeed justice that is due justice that is righteous justice that indeed comes against an evil wicked city for their sins for their immorality for them being enemies of God and this is what the book of Nahum is about and so if you guys would go ahead and turn me to Book of Nahum if you need to, to find where it is, go to your table contest. There's no shame in that. Or if you're using electronically, it's in the Minor Prophets Taurus, the latter half of your Old Testament. Um, it is after Micah um, and right before, what was it, Habakkuk. All right. And so it's going to be towards maybe a little bit past the middle of your Bible. 
And so if you if you don't know much about this book, that's okay. We're going to go through this series and hopefully you'll come away uh, from this series with, with a greater knowledge of who God is and what this book of Nahum is about. And so you guys return there. Go ahead. Let's go ahead and just look at the first verse. This will be an introduction to this book. All right. So Nahum chapter one, verse one says an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, we, we see this one verse, and we see this one verse that this here is an oracle, a, a, a prophecy, a saying, a word of God concerning Nineveh. Concerning Nineveh. Now, who is Nineveh? What is Nineveh? Nineveh is a city. It's a great city. It's a grand city. It's the, it's the capital of the, of the great Assyrian Empire. Right? And, and this here is the city that, is repre that represents the power, the greatness, the majesty of the Assyrian Empire during that time. And if you guys, if you guys think Nineveh, that sounds like a familiar city, it, it should. Because Nineveh was mentioned in the book of Jonah. Right? Jonah was sent to Nineveh to tell Nineveh, hey, you guys repent. You guys should repent because judgment is coming. And guess what? This this Gentile nation, this non-Israelite nation city, they did repent. And Jonah, of course, grumbled, complained, and, and all that. But we see here that Nineveh repented, and God didn't, relented, right? God did not cast judgment upon this great city. <coughs> Give me a moment. My throat is dry. So that so Jonah was a prophet that was first sent to Nineveh, and that was about a hundred years before Nahum. Right, about a hundred years. So a hundred years have passed now, and Nineveh's repentance was well known. Right, their judgment was relented, and they went on for another hundred years. But they also went back to their evil ways. <clears throat> it could have been a new generation. Could have been the same generation. Those details don't really matter. What we do know is that Nineveh remained immoral and Nineveh remained as this evil city but it was also part of this great Assyrian empire and as, as it was part of this great Assyrian empire Assyria during this time was 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 just the big bully of the land they they took control of everything and they cast fear over the land of Israel over the nation of Judah and you got to remember, Israel at this time has been divided, right? We have, the, we have the north nation of Israel, and we have the south nation of Judah. And Nahum here is a prophet for the southern nation, the southern kingdom of Judah. And around this time, this prophecy, around 640 BC, that's around what, we, we think, what most scholars think Nahum was written, 640 BC. We see here Nineveh was the city that represented the immovable force that stood head and shoulders above the rest of the world. And Judah was just this little nation divided, right? Divided from their northern brothers. And, and they were arguing, they were battling, their kings were falling to immorality. It was just this little nation. Judah was an underdog here. Now, what's happening in Judah during this time? 
Well, during this time, Lord, the Lord has delivered Judah recently from Assyria under King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah, he was, he was a complicated king, but I think eventually he was called a follower of the Lord. Right? He, he did go through some stuff early in his reign, but he repented and he ended up following God. And God was able to deliver Judah from the Syrians because King Hezekiah was faithful. And we see that in Second Corinth, in Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two, verse twenty to twenty-three. Then Hezekiah's King Hezekiah passed away, and his son King Manasseh rose and took the took the throne. But Manasseh was different. Manasseh was apostate. He actually fell away. He brought back idol worship, and he rebuilt temples that Hezekiah brought down. And he disobeyed God. He was unfaithful, and because of that. The Lord then allowed Manasseh to be captured by the Syrians, taken away, most likely to the city of Nineveh. And he was a prisoner there for, for many years. And eventually over time, Manasseh was released. And when he was released, he repented. He realized what he's done wrong. He actually began to make reforms towards the end of his life. But it wasn't for very long. It was probably only for about two or three years. I was starting to make reforms and then he passed away. And it was around this time that they say that the book of Nahum was written, that Nahum the prophets was making this grand prophecy. You see, at this time, we have here Judah just experiencing a king who was who was captured, a prisoner for many years, and just released, and just starting to be reformed, but passed away. And yet, there's still Nineveh in the Syrian Empire, this grand, mighty power that looms a great shadow over the land. And it was during this time that the prophet Nahum brought this message to Judah from God. Nahum himself, little known is known about Nahum about who this, who this prophet is. And those known about his, his hometown, El-Kosh. We, we, we don't know, we, nobody actually knows where that town is. So little is known about Nahum, but what we do know about Nahum is that his name, that the root word of his name means comfort. It means the comfort. And that's what we're going to see in this, in this whole book, that this, this prophecy given by Nahum that there's judgment to come, a judgment against Nineveh, that, that judgment was meant to bring comfort to his audience in Judah. And we'll see here in this book that these words are words of God's promise, his promise of justice, a vindication of his own name. You know, people crying out to God, asking, where are you? We realize we have done wrong. Lord, you promised that you would remain faithful. These words here are a witness to God's faithfulness to his people. And we'll see here that the words of judgment found in this book becomes words of comfort to the ears of God's people. And so as we begin this series, we're going to look at, the, we're going to look at verses 2 to 8. And in verses 2 to 8, I titled this message as the beautiful hymn of God's, of God's judgment because this, this, this is indeed a hymn. These first six verses is a hymn. And, and what we'll see in this hymn is, is that it will bring you comfort. It will bring you comfort because of three facts about God's 
judgment, God's coming judgment. We'll see here the sovereign God, he will indeed judge those who are against him. So let's take a look. Let's read this whole passage. So let's read verses 2 to 8 together. This here is God's word. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Karma wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken to pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. The first fact that we will see about God's judgment is that his judgment is inevitable. His judgment is inevitable. What we see here in verses 2 to 8 is that this psalm is about God. This hymn is about God. And God is indeed unstoppable. Right? God here is in complete control of all these. He's in complete control of all that's going on. And he's in complete control of his own judgment. He has a plan. He's like a quarterback who just understands the games, knows every route, and can make every throw. God's judgment here is real. And it's calculated. And God here is in control, and it is inevitable that judgment will indeed come. And we see here first in verse 2 that God is indeed an avenging God. He, this, this, and this is, this is the key or the, the key word in the first two verses, right? The word avenging here is used three times just to describe who God is. God is, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. We see here that God is a continuously avenging God. He doesn't just stop being an avenger. He, he's always avenging. This is the greatest avenger, right? In Psalm 94 verse 1 says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. God is a God of vengeance. He is indeed a God of love. He's indeed a God of grace, but he's also a God of vengeance. And we see here God is of avenging God because he is vindicating his name. What we, what we get a sense here is that these words here used to describe God, this word avenging, is an action verb. This, this is to show that God is taking action. He's not just filled with vengeance. He's actually the only one who can take vengeance. The only one who can avenge his own name. He alone holds the power to vindicate his own name. 
what this means is that God will be the one who will avenge his, for his name's sake. He's also be the one who will avenge for his people, right? God tells us in scripture, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 32, 30, verse 35, that vengeance is his and his alone. And this repeated in the New Testament, right? In Romans chapter 12 and Hebrews chapter 10, that those passages tell us that we are out to do good to our enemies. Why? Because God will be our avenger. God is the one who will avenge all things. And what that means is that everything that is wrong in this world, everything that's, that, that is considered as sin, is indeed sin against God. When people, when the world hates upon believers, when the world hates upon the church, when, when, there are the, when the weak are being victimized, all people, all sin will be answered by God, right? God will indeed seize it all and all that people do, they have to answer to God because God created this world and God created each one of us, every single human being, all in his own image. Therefore, every single human being ever born is held accountable to God. God will be an avenger for his own name, for his own glory's sake. We see here God is taking vengeance because he is also a jealous God, right? He will not share his glory because no one else deserves glory. God alone deserves all the glory. And that's what it means to be jealous. For God to be jealous, he's, it means that he's a zealous God. He's one who is zealous for his glory, a glory that belongs to him and him alone. That means no other worship should be given to any other God, any other idol. All worship belongs to God alone. And when we see here that God indeed is God, God stands alone, and God is above all else, right? There is no one else who can match up to God. If you are worshiping someone else, you're worshiping someone other than this triune God, you are giving glory to someone who does not deserve glory. It's interesting here in the original language, in, in verse 2, it says here, the Lord is jealous and avenging God. And we see here, um, and, and we see here two words, two names actually being used, right? The Lord, Yahweh, is a jealous and avenging God. And here's the common word, uh, the common Hebrew word used for God, El, right? El, the, the word El, short for Elohim, is, is, is a common word used to describe God. And then a third name is being used in the second, um, in the second line. It says, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Now, in the English translation, this doesn't come out much, but in the Hebrew, the word wrathful is actually two Hebrew words, which stands for Lord of wrath or master of wrath. And that word master, that word Lord, master, is, is the Hebrew word Baal, right? And that is actually used for a pagan god that's worshipped by the Canaanites, right? The god of fertility, the god, the, the pagan god that is, that is, that that the Canaanites equated to the Israel's great Yahweh. The, the, the reason why these three names are used here, in fact, the name Yahweh just then is the only name that's being used for the rest of the book of Nahum. The reason why these three names are being used is to show that Yahweh, the Lord, is the one guy that stands above all of them. His, 
any name you give to any other God doesn't belong to them. All names of God belongs to this one God alone, the God of Israel, Yahweh. We see here that no one can take God's place. He is the one ruler who deserves all the glory and all the worship, and rightfully so. And this is why God should be jealous for his own name. And this is why we should be zealous for God's name to be proclaimed. Right? And this, this is something that's right. This is something that we, we don't see this as something that's bad, right? When we try to take all the glory, that's, that, that comes as a narcissistic and, and evil. But when God gets all the glory, that's actually right because God deserves the glory, right? Well, we see a human example of this, right? Let's think about a human example. Think about a husband and a wife. A husband should be jealous for his wife, meaning to desire his wife because his wife belongs to him and the husband belongs to the wife as well right i'm not not trying to say that just ownership by the husband only but the but then the husband should be zealous for his wife should be jealous for her that if she spends more time with some other man he should be actually jealous for her because that's the right thing to feel for for what's rightfully his when god is jealous for his glory it is indeed rightfully his so he's zealous for his glory and we should give it to him. We see here as well that God is a wrathful God, right? God is the one who takes vengeance on his adversary. He's the one who keeps wrath for his enemies. This means all people, all people must answer to him. And remember that this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. And Nineveh was previously used by God to actually judge Israel, to judge Judah for their sins. Right? So Nineveh was God's tool, God's rod of wrath against Judah and Israel. But that doesn't mean Nineveh was exempt before God as well. No, Nineveh will also be judged for their sin, for their wickedness. All people have to answer to God. And so his enemies will not escape. Oh, his enemies will not escape. All people, no one is exempt here. Everyone, everyone will face the inevitable. God will judge their sin. God will judge your sin. He will judge your sin. What we see here is that we don't want to be against God. You don't want to be against God. You don't want to be his enemy. Right? It, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a fearsome thing to do, to imagine being in a boxing ring and on the other corner is God, right? Putting on his gloves. You're just, you might as well just give up. You don't want to be in the same ring with God. But yet all of us have to answer to him. This is inevitable. We see more descriptions of God's judgment here in verse 3. And we see here that God is slow to anger. He also is great in power. What we get here is that God is a patient God. He's a patient God, right? What we get the sense here is that God is not a God that suddenly, you know, throws down fire and brimstone upon this world, right? We don't know of any comet that's heading towards earth at this moment. What we see here is that God is a patient God. He's, he's in complete control of his wrath, right? He's not, he's not suddenly just 
unleashing and out of rage, out of uncontrolled anger, he has a plan, he has a timing, he has a will, and he's in complete control of his wrath. The Lord here is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. These two lines here in verse 3. Uh, is actually uh, a quote from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 to 7. And in Exodus 34, is, it's the grand description of God given by God to Moses. And there's actually a lot more in these descriptions, right? Within that, the Lord calls himself slow to anger, great in power, but he also says he's graceful, that he's, um, that he's merciful, that he will forgive sins. And, and, and all these great attributes of God. And yet here in Nahum, all that's left out. And I believe it's because God here wants to emphasize. He wants to emphasize that there is judgment coming to Nineveh. And it is inevitable. They cannot escape it. Right, what we see here, the Lord will by no means, by no means, this is emphatic. He will by no means clear the guilty. And this here shows that God's wrath, God's wrath is patient, but it's also just. He will not simply just sweep misdemeanors under, under the rug. He will not just throw away a ticket. He will judge all things. He will not clear the guilty. What we get here, what we get here as a reminder for us personally, is that this is not an excuse to be complacent in your faith. This is not an excuse to, to swipe away sins to decide. It's not an excuse to think that, oh, it's a small thing. God doesn't, God is graceful. He won't, he won't care about that. No, God cares. God will judge every single sin. God will judge you. We have to remember here that God being slow in anger is a reminder that God is still indeed angry. Right? You may not face his anger now, but that doesn't mean he's not angry. He is still indeed angry. He's just slow to act because he's giving time for repentance. He's giving time for you to come to him, to repent of your sin, to be and come to know his grace. But God indeed is still angry at your sin. But God here, this, this word, this, this understanding of God's character, of his slowness to anger, yet still angry, still raffles, his judgment still to come, also helps bring us comfort when we look upon this wicked world. Right, we have to remember when we see others, we, we're reminded that God sees all things. That God has indeed noticed the violence that goes on throughout this world. Right, when we are crying for justice after justice for all these things that may be happening in this world. Guys, have faith, have confidence that God indeed hears you and he sees it. He knows who has done the wrong, and he will cast judgment. God sees all things. He sees the stuff that's going on in this world, wicked things, things like child trafficking or sexual immorality. He sees the strong praying on the weak, and he will judge them all. He will judge all people, 
from the lowest to the greatest. He'll judge world leaders, but he'll also judge the homeless folks. He will judge all people. No one here is exempt. And what we see here is that the world may laugh in the face of God, thinking that God's not here because he's slow to anger, but they, but in the end, they will be in the hands of God and it will not be, it will not be a sunny day. They will be in the hands of a wrathful God, of an angry God against their sins. God will certainly see to it. He will by no means clear the guilty. We see here God's inevitable judgment against sin. Next, we see God's inescapable judgment. God's judgment is inescapable. And we see this in the next three verses. Right, and in these next three verses, we, we get here descriptions, descriptions of who God is by the means of nature. And, and when we think about nature, we see here then just how nature really helps us think about God and think about how small we are as well. Right, God uses nature as representations of his wrath. Let's, let's, let's think about this. Let's go through this line by line and just consider for a moment. It says here in the middle of verse, th- verse 3, His way is in whirlwind and storm. The clouds are the dust of His feet. This just shows how great and grand and majestic God is. Right? Think about who you are in the midst of a storm. Right? Have you guys ever been in the midst of like this crazy storm or or say if you've been to like Southeast Asia and it's typhoon season, it's just the winds are blowing like crazy. The rain is coming down relentlessly. Don't you just feel utterly powerless? Like you're just at the mercy of mother nature. And what can you do? You're just trying to take cover and pray that it'll pass by, right? And yet it says here, God's way is in whirlwind and storm. He's the one who controls the storms. Every cloud carries out his commands. God is above all that, controlling all things. He is the DJ, just, you know, tweaking things here and there, adjusting the volume, making the thunderclaps. Then we see here in verse 4. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. Well, when we get here, a reminder of how powerful God is, right? He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. This is a reminder back to Israel, right? Psalm 106, verse 9 tells us that God rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. Right? This, is, this is a reminder of just how powerful God is. He can split the waters and lead his people on dry land. And can you imagine the Israelites, towers of water next to them, thinking, praying, don't let go, God. Don't let these waters fall upon me. This is not just grace and love leading Israel. This is a frightful, powerful God who leads them out. And we see here that God indeed is powerful. He is in control of these things. And he here is in control of the waters and the seas of the rain. When we see here the lands of Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, these, these three lands are fertile lands. 
Um, their deferral lands are known for the fertility of, of their crops being growing and, and produce. It's, it's a representation of life, right? And life and, and profit and, and all and surplus of food. And yet God can dry them up with one slurp of his straw. He dries them up and all of it withers and goes away. This here is a reminder that God here is powerful. And in this the Syrian Empire during this time, they were they were built around these mighty rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And Nineveh actually harnessed its power from a, a nearby river, you know, harnesses power and irrigation from this nearby river. And here God reminds Israel, reminds Judah, I can take all that away just so easily and their power is gone just like dad's you see here god's power over the waters then in verse five we see god's power over the mountains right the mountains quake before him, the hills melt the earth heaves before him the world and all who dwells in it the the, the earth itself controlled by God there's nothing scarier nothing more sudden and unexpected than an earthquake All right when it comes it comes and it does not relent it's not merciful and it scares all people right? an earthquake makes you feel helpless if you jump down to the second half of verse six it says here God's wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him we see here God, God's wrath is like lava. It just destroys everything in his path. And we get here, right? In, in these few verses, we get here a sense of God's power, right? Over nature, we have your wind, water, earth, fire. I mean, God here, is, is, he's, he's the avatar here, right? He's the one that's, that's in control of all these elements around the world, and no one can stop him. How then can anyone expect to escape? And that's what God here brings to question in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? What can you do before such a powerful, mighty God? Recognize here that God's judgment is indeed inescapable. And we see here in verse 6, we see your rhetorical questions. And God uses rhetorical questions all the time because he uses them to capture our attention, to bring us to, to realize who we are before God. Right? He does this in Job, right? In Job 38 verse 2, he asks Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who are you, Job, to question me? In Isaiah chapter 11 verse 11, uh, God, again, same thing. He says, will you command me concerning my children in the work of my hands? We see here these rhetorical questions given to God's audience, given to God's people, given to you to remind you, who are you? Who are you to think that you can defy the Lord? This is to help us have a self-examination of our own lives, of our own thoughts, of our own hearts. Where are you at? Where do you stand before God? Uh, uh, do you think that you're able to save yourself? Do you think that you're able to save others? 
consider yourself before God and be reminded, be reminded of just how small you are to this great and awesome God who is in control of all things, including the winds, including the earth, including the fire and all that's in it. God is this great and mighty God. We, we are, we are nothing. We are nothing. You see, these questions here, who can stand before his nature, who can endure the heat of his anger, is to remind us that we are, we are utterly small before God. And God is the judge. God is also the executor. He will execute his sentence against you. God will be the one to proclaim his final verdict. And his word is final and inescapable. We are reminded here that God, God knows all and he sees all. He sees every single sin in your life and everyone's life, even the most inner thoughts that could be sinful, that the most inner thoughts, the, 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 the wickedest desires that may never see the day of light. God knows and God will indeed judge. No one can escape his judgments. Who are you then to think? Who are you to think that you can get away? This is something that the world must hear. This is something that the world must be, remember, be reminded of. That they are all, they're all going, running straight into God's judgments. And they cannot escape. We see here God's judgment is inescapable. And third, we see that God's judgment is inviolable, meaning God's judgment is unchanging. It will not change. His verdict will remain forever. It's final. It's ultimate. And what we see then here in verse 7, we'll start with verse 8. We see here that God will make indeed a complete end of his adversaries, a complete end of his, of his enemies. And the word here, complete end, it's one word in Hebrew, and it points to God's sovereignty over all of history. Right? God here, he's, he's the one who will judge, and he's the one who will make the final verdict. And when his final verdict says, you will be, you will be destroyed, that means you will be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened to Nineveh. Right? Uh, about, about 30, 40 years after this prophecy, Nineveh was growing weaker in power. And, and the Syrian Empire eventually fell. But Nineveh itself, this great grand city, was so was destroyed, brought down to, to a point where it was literally wiped off the face of the planet. And, and I'm not completely sure they found remains of it now, but for the longest time, people crossed over the land where the city used to be never, and never noticed that there used to be a great city there. Nineveh was completely destroyed. But it doesn't just end there. It says here that God will also pursue his enemies into darkness. And this here, the, the Hebrew word here, the Hebrew verb is in the imperfect form, meaning this is a continuous action that will endure forever. God will pursue his enemies into darkness. And darkness 
is a symbol of distress and terror. It's, 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 it's this feeling of dread around every corner. It's, it is indeed the reality of hell. And the reality of hell is that the terror of God never ends. This is not something to scoff at, not something to belittle. This is something that is indeed, indeed terrifying and also sad when we see and know that that's where people will go. They do not come to know God. They do not come to know Jesus Christ. God will pursue his enemies into darkness. Now, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this great and powerful God and his judgment against this world, against all sins, says here that God will, that God is indeed good. Verse 7. And we see here in verse 7 that God is good. And this phrase, this term, this, this, this truth, this character about God stands out like a just stands out out of all this, right? It's, it's different. We see here all of these things about God's jealousies, God's vengeance, God's wrath. And then it says here in verse 7, God is good. God is good. And we see here God's goodness here. It, it stands up here straight and tall without question, right? In the mid, amid all the judgment that's being proclaimed here, God is good. And that is stated emphatically as stated with confidence. What we get here is that the one who brings judgment, God, God who brings judgment does so as part of his goodness. The wrathful God judges out of his goodness. And the belief that God is good that God is good and all that he does, even in his wrath, the belief that God is good is a basic tenet of our faith, right? This is, this is foundational, right? Eve doubted that God is good and she took the fruit. We, we are to understand that God's goodness is the foundational to our faith. Psalm 136 verse 1, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. God's wrath, then, God's wrath comes upon this world, and yet we remember God's wrath is not this uncontrollable rage. It's, it's indeed one that is targeted, targeted specifically at sin, and targeted specifically at his enemies. And for those who know God, for those who find refuge in God, God's goodness becomes a stronghold for them. That's what it says here in verse 7, right? It's God himself, amidst all his wrath, becomes a stronghold. Becomes a stronghold in the day of trouble because he knows those who take refuge in him. And it says here that God knows. God knows them. God knows them. And, and this here is an intimate knowledge. This is not just God knows them by name or he knows all them. God knows everyone, right? God knows every single person. We, we just covered that. God sees and knows every sin, knows every dark corners of your heart, of your mind. But here, God knows those who take refuge in him. This knowledge here is one that's personal. One that's relational. 
we see this aspect of knowing found in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, where God is speaking to Israel and he says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Right? God knows every family of the earth, but yet here he says specifically to Israel, you only have I known. Right? What this means here is that Israel, Israel here receives God's special love. But what we must remember is that even though Israel received God's special love, that doesn't mean Israel is exempt from God's judgment. Right? God still judged Israel. He brought Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire upon Israel. Yet, the same God who judges Israel still knows Israel personally. And he turns then to Nineveh, to the Assyrian Empire, and judges them for their sins. This here, this here becomes a great truth for us to hang on to because what, it, what a joy it must be to realize that you who are saved, you who are believers are known by God, not as an enemy, not as an enemy, but as a friend. And, and this then leads to the key theme that we will find here in the book of Nahum throughout the series, that God's goodness is portrayed then through his judgment. God's goodness is portrayed through his judgment. What we see here is that Israel, Judah, was crying out to God to help them from the Syrian Empire, to help them from Nineveh. And God has not turned a deaf ear against the cries of his people. God hears them. And God's vengeance against his enemies here means salvation for his people. When God judges Nineveh, it means salvation for Judah, for his people. And this is what God's judgment means for every time he brings upon judgment. When he brings upon judgment is based on his goodness, based on his righteousness. But that goodness and righteousness also covers those whom he personally knows. Isaiah chapter 35 verse 4 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. The God of vengeance will save you. And so when we realize that God's judgment against the wicked is actually his goodness to us who are his people, this brings us joy. This should bring us comfort. That there's this joy and comfort to be found in God's judgment. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, right? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the, is the same thing as to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And this is to be a comfort for all who mourn. I mean, when you're mourning, you're mourning because you realize there's sin in this world and there needs to be justice. And God is the one who will bring about that justice. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. We see here again that within God's judgment comes redemption. And so when we place our hope in God, we will see that in God's judgment, comes redemption what we see here is that our redemption comes with a price 
It comes with a price. That salvation is not done without the shedding of blood. That nations will fall, the earth will be destroyed, the wicked condemned, and yet those who know the Lord and are known by the Lord will be kept safe. What we see here is that we stand indeed weak, lowly, as sinners before a holy God, which means God's wrath indeed burns against our sin. God's wrath burns against your sin. We just covered all that. God's wrath burns against all people, against your parents, against your siblings, against your friends of all people. And what this reminds us of, what all this reminds us of is that we are not masters in this world. We are we are. We are in servitude to this holy, sovereign God. We all have to answer to him. And so, as this world is condemned to destruction, as God's judgment is indeed coming upon all sin, we have to remember that in the day of judgment, as it is for Nineveh and Judah, in the day of judgment, there remains a refuge. Meaning grace abounds when judgment comes. We see here a refuge. Refuge not found outside of God, but found in God. And as we connect this to the New Testament, and we'll cover more of Nahum as we go through the series, and we'll see how God's judgment plays out. But just bring this to the New Testament. We see here God's goodness shine through the judgment that was upon the cross for our sins. Guys, the wrath, the judgment of your sins, this destructive judgment of tracing you, pursuing you into darkness, that judgment was laid upon the cross on God's own son. And on the cross, when Jesus hung there, the day turned dark. Jesus died, carrying the weight of God's wrath against you. You see, on the cross, we find grace in the midst of judgment. We find goodness in God's wrath. Because Jesus Christ bore our punishment upon that cross. So that we may find safety and refuge in him alone. God's goodness shines through the cross. What we see here is that the cross, when we think about the cross and and our Savior hanging upon that cross, it's not just about God's grace. The cross also teaches us about God's judgment. Teaches us about God's judgment. The cross reminds you that God's judgment is inevitable. That God will indeed have his vengeance against all sin. But by his grace, his vengeance against your sin was placed upon his son. The cross reminds you that God's judgment is inescapable. That God's own son, the perfect righteous one, died. He did not escape God's wrath, but he died in order so that you may live. The cross reminds you that God's judgment is inviolable because Jesus Christ died once. He died once to guarantee the salvation for all who seek refuge in him alone. Jesus Christ here dies so that his blood can cover you. Christ becomes then your hideaway, your refuge, your rock. 
And it's in the midst of all this that we can find comfort in God's judgment. When you're feeling the guilt upon your soul weighing down upon you, you feel like this guilt gnawing at your heart, and there's this fear, this dread of punishment and condemnation upon your soul, and this just seems like it's bringing you down. It's so hard to get up every single day when you feel that in your own heart. I'm asking you, scripture here tells you to cling to Christ. Cling to Christ who takes away that burden, who takes your condemnation, and he hides you away under his arm in his refuge. He died so that you may live. And Christ did that. Christ laid down his life for you because he knows you. Because he knows you. John chapter 10, verse 14. We have the beautiful words of Jesus where he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own knows me. And I laid down my life for the sheep. What, what a beautiful savior who knows us, saves us, protects us from his judgment against our sins. And so then the big idea for the sermon tonight is God's inevitable, inescapable, inviolable judgment is put on full display on the cross so that you may know God's goodness and find refuge in Christ alone. This is what we will come to see here in our first sermon in Nahum. And this is what we'll come to see as we continue to read about God's judgment against Nineveh. And it should remind us that this judgment was also awaiting us. But if you come to know Christ, if you come to know Jesus Christ, God's son on the cross, and you come to believe in him as Lord and Savior, repent of your sin, realize that he bored in your sins on that cross. He took upon God's wrath. He took upon his judgment against you. And in Christ, then, you can find refuge and believe and see and behold that God indeed is good. With that, let's pray. Lord, you are good. You are good. And you are good even in the midst of your judgments, even in the midst of your wrath. Lord, you are good. You are good forever. Let us then praise you and give thanks to you because you are good. And in the midst of all that, Lord, let us not also forget your justice, your wrath, your anger against sin, and your judgment to come. Because, Lord, all these characteristics define who you are. Let us not neglect any of it. But let us continue to uphold who you are as revealed in Scripture, showing us every aspect of your love, of your grace, of your wrath. Lord, let us come to know you more as you have come to know us, as you know us and saved us from our own sins. Lord, let us come to know you and behold your goodness and worship you. Let us, let us praise your name 
And let us also be zealous and passionate for your glory. Lord, be with all of us who are here. And for any of us who do may not know Christ in this room, in this Zoom call or listening online, I, also, I pray also for you that you will come to know Christ. You come to know God. And that, that the Spirit will move amongst you. And that, that the Lord God will come to know you and you will know him. So that you may find refuge in Christ alone from your sins. Because God indeed is good and he is grateful graceful and he is he is merciful he seeks to forgive you so lord let us remember that let us cling on to that because that is indeed the gospel that is indeed our faith that indeed is our life we are in christ thank you lord for such a gift be with us now uh, in our discussion groups or in the rest of our nights, give us rest and prepare us for a weekend ahead. I pray all this then in your holy and precious name. Amen.